and welcome to the Future of Gaming podcast. I'm your host, Nico, and today I'm joined with a bunch of people that I spent a lot of time with. We have three colleagues of mine, all three of them. We have Jamie Wallace, Ben Naylor, and Justin Swartz, part of the Bitcraft crypto team. Um, as you might have seen, we recently put out a state of the Web3 game developer tooling report where we go over um, all the tooling that's out there if you want to build a game using Web3 Tech. And the lads on the show here did a lot of work on this, specifically Jamie and Ben. And the goal of today is to go through the reports, um, discuss our findings, and hopefully you can take away a few interesting things that you didn't know before. Before we get started, I think um, a round of intros for these gentlemen um, makes sense. So I'll go. I'll follow the people on my screen from top to bottom. So Jamie, you want to give us a brief background about yourself? Yeah, definitely. Um, hey guys, Jamie, been at Bitcraft for just almost two years now, um, primarily focusing on the crypto team. Um, background, studied finance, fell down the crypto rabbit hole, decided to start a research company with a friend, did that for about 18 months throughout the bull market, did a bunch of reports on various protocols, um, blockchains, built up a pretty good following and network through that, and then used that to pivot into the investment side and been a Bitcraft ever since. Awesome. Ben. Hey, everyone. I'm Ben. Um, Tech Noir on Twitter and Discord. Um, my background's in software engineering. Um, prior to that, was actually sound engineering. Um, been at Bitcraft for just over a year now. Um, got into Web3 in 2020. Fell deep down the rabbit hole. Um, and... Uh, Spent a bunch of time doing Web3 developer boot camps to learn the technical side, as well as leading research teams in the Neo Tokyo DAO, which is where I bumped into Carlos, who's another member of the crypto team not present today. Um, and then since then, I've been working full-time on the crypto team at Bitcraft, um, prim- primarily in uh, a research-based role. Okay, Ben, what is the story um, behind the lamp over your right shoulder? Damn, you guys can see that. Yeah, yeah, I like yeah. to say I like to say that's like that's like a hipster lamp, but in reality, it comes from my grand's house. Okay, <laughs> that's a, it's a good talking um, point. Exactly, Justin. Hey guys, um, background in finance. I started off in investment banking, uh, in mergers and acquisitions, where I got all my grey hairs. Um, at that time, was a bit crypto curious and got into the space around 2015. Um, sound like a madman trying to preach that investment banks or banks should be custodial providers sort of way before that was a thing. Um, then jumped into traditional venture capital, invested across a whole load of se- sectors um, at a firm down here in South Africa. Uh, did that for about three years. Um, I was a lifelong gamer, an avid gamer ever since, and that led me to Bitcraft, where I've been uh, with you fellows uh, for about a year now. Amazing. Good. Let's dive in. Um, maybe the first question to to answer is why did we, why did you decide to work on a state of the, the Web3 game developer um, landscape? Ben? Sure. Um, I guess there's two main reasons. Firstly, we wanted to provide a good overview and resource for founders building in the space. And there's a lot of things being built. And sometimes when you're deep in the trenches, it's hard to get that bird's eye view of everything that's uh, being built. 
Um, so it was really just uh, raising awareness of the different options available, but also it was an opportunity for us as a, an investment team to put our thoughts down on paper, um, clarify views and refine them in each sector to support our investment process, basically. Yep. Something I've observed in this space is that there's a lot of teams that, you know, decide to go a certain direction. You know, people that saw the massive amount of fundraising happening within the Web3 gaming space and decide, hey, and if these in my game actually make a lot of sense, that then go heads down and build um, and kind of not really follow the evolution in the space. And this space is is like moving super fast. And so I think um, it makes a ton of sense to once in a while just pop your head out and and see what changed because um one of my one of my observations is that a lot of team follow a playbook that's been outdated and so um it's always good to to see what others are up to and um and how what cool stuff people are using these these new technologies for absolutely and part of the research process we looked at um a report commissioned by game 7 dow only a year ago and this report lists a bunch of things that's missing from the space, including good Unity and Unreal SDKs um, and a host of other things. Fast forward a year and all this stuff has been built um, by multiple teams. So in a way you have analysis paralysis, there's that much stuff actually available now. So um, just a awesome. little observation there. Let's start diving in. First parts, end-to-end solution versus modular approach. Ben, what, what can you tell us about that? So... As part of the research report, we created a market map which divides the infrastructure up into different sectors. However, we thought that it was it was useful to frame it in a more broader sense. So we decided a good way to do that would be have been kind of the vertically integrated platforms, fully end-to-end solutions at one end, point solutions at another end, and most infrastructure companies will lay somewhere on this scale. So at the end-to-end side... Um, you've got platforms like Immutable or Ready Games that provide um, a holistic set of tools for game developers, including underlying blockchain, um, player wallets, account management, asset minting, marketplaces, analytics, all that kind of stuff, everything the game developer needs. So um, they can just focus then on building out engaging core gameplay mechanics. Uh, and for this reason, we feel this option is is well suited to traditional game developers coming into the space. Uh, teams that don't have full-time blockchain engineers or that necessarily have the expertise in-house. Um, aside from what I've already mentioned, the other advantages to this are the cost saving uh, from bundling products together. You get things like dev support as well. And the platform or the, the vendor is incentivized to keep their offerings up to date in order to stay competitive with others in the market so developers get all the latest updates uh, by proxy. Um, On the flip side, though, there are some potential drawbacks. Depending on the platform, teams may see reduced flexibility in workflows because it's largely dictated by the the workflows the platform has decided to follow. Um, And teams could also see dependency on the underlying platform. So it's just something to bear in mind when um, building out the stack. And then going to the other side, the, the fully point, the, like the point solutions, like like a rainbow wallet, for example, which is purely for connecting your wallet to the blockchain um, or the chain safe SDK. These are specialized solutions and it gives teams the, the option to 
compose their stack and cherry pick uh, solutions that are highly specialized at different things. Advantages to this is you get a lot of flexibility and you're not dependent on a single underlying vendor. Um, but on the flip side, it's expensive and time-consuming to research, stand up all these different infrastructure, uh, connect them all together, and then maintain it going forward as well. So this is better suited to experienced Web3 developer teams, we believe, um, that are wanting to do something, kind of lean into the, um, the unique affordances of blockchain beyond simple asset ownership. So things like bespoke interoperability or moving more game logic on chain, for example. Good. So I'm going to try to summarize it very briefly, right? If I'm a Web3 game developer, I want to start from scratch, I'd have two paths. Either I go for an end-to-end -end solution, which makes my life easier. I can focus on pure game building, and they provide an SDK or APIs to handle all of the, the blockchain stuff. Um, that comes with um, significant like vendor buy-in, which limits my flexibility um, and could potentially cause for some issues um, later down the road, but it makes you know my life easier, faster. I don't need to think about the fast-moving blockchain space because that's you know the providers, the end-to-end -end provider's job. If I yeah. want more flexibility, I go for a modular system where I plug and play point solutions and, and put them together to fit my needs. Generally, that's recommended if I have more blockchain experience or I want to do some 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 cool new shit that doesn't really exist and might not be able be possible with the the packaged solutions that the end-to-end -end providers um, give me. Exactly, yeah. And and teams might also choose to have most of the stuff handled by one of these end-to-end -end solutions, but then just um you know the composability of blockchain allows you to just bolt on Point solutions in areas where the end-to-end -end solution might be lacking, for example. Awesome. Good. So if I'm, you know, considering building a game, so what we're going to do is we're going to link the reports in the description below. And so if you want to see some names, if you want to see the market map, um, just have a look there. We, we don't have to go over the all of the names and all the, the different um, companies that are tackling this, um, which allows us to move on to our next park part, which is different blockchains. Jamie, what, what can you um, tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, this is probably the most common question we get asked from our portfolio companies and prospective companies is which game or like where should I deploy my game? Where should I build my game on? Um, I think our answer is it depends. There's not a, a right solution for everyone. I think we're still in the early days. We've seen companies like Immutable X do a really good job of building early network effects and early ecosystem of games. I think they're by far the leaders in terms of games on their platform and they're been doing really good stuff on the infrastructure side, building out a, a toolkit of developer tools around it to be able to, like Ben mentioned, have a, a more end-to-end -end solution. Um, we've also seen stuff like Polygon and Arbitrum do really well at just getting broader liquidity um, and just more users, which is obviously good for user acquisition. Um, I think right now in the current state of it, we're seeing um, immutable Polygon and Avalanche being the three main ones we see games typically go towards. Um, people building on Avalanche because they've got the subnets, they really want this, their own blockchain to be able to have more flexibility, use their native token as a gas token, be able to customize parameters of the chain. Um, and then we're also seeing some really interesting stuff happen in the Arbitrum um, ecosystem as well. They've done really well um, acquiring the whole treasury ecosystem. There's a whole slew of games being built on there. Um, which are picking up some nice steam. I know the Arbitrum team's putting a, a big emphasis this year, particularly on acquiring games. They've got their Nova infrastructure to be able to support games a bit easier. We're also seeing the emergence of this OP stack as well and a bunch of 
companies building, you know, individualized app specific chains on that infrastructure as well. So I think it, I think it really depends. Like there's so many options. Um, I think developers can often get lost and confused with all the different options. I think the biggest things from our perspective is, um, we definitely have a bias towards EVM. We think in terms of developer tooling, network effects, in terms of builders and users, it's definitely the biggest. And we've seen sort of the emergence of all these layer two and layer three solutions, um, being built on top of the Ethereum virtual machine. So I think we are biased towards sticking um, sort of in that ecosystem as well. And then um, I think it's really important to assess the developer tools because um, that's going to be probably the biggest factor as you're building your game. If you choose a, a chain that you know there's no developer tooling built for, then you're going to have a really tough time and you're going to incur like a bunch of sort of technical debt having to build all that stuff up. So I think, you know, before going in and thinking about blockchains, I think it's honestly better to go think about what tools do I need to build my game and then what chains are compatible with that and work from there. Um, yeah, it makes a ton of sense. I think if you if you look, and we've talked about this on this podcast before, if you look at the evolution of standards in the, the Web 1 and 2 era, specifically the Web 1 era, you'll see that there's a bunch of things that evolved um, that are suboptimal, but that just had this this um network effect and that past you know the um the the point of no return where it's, it started compounding and so because everyone started using a certain like a certain tool or a certain way of doing things um that became the dominant way um and the dominant solution and so similarly specifically in the blockchain there's a like everything is open source and even open state and so i think network effects um, and the critical mass of developers are really important. And so for that reason, I think you need a very, very, very good reason to not stay within the EVM ecosystem, I would say, um, if anyone asks that. Good. Um, I, yeah, okay. Let's move on to to the next um, parts, wallets and player accounts. Benny, you want to briefly introduce this this part? Sure, yeah. Um, I'll try and be brief because it's obviously a big area in, mm-hmm. in Web3 right now. Um, it's the user's main touch point with the blockchain and hence where most of the friction happens. Um, and because of this, there are a lot of people, uh, a lot of startups trying to build solutions to address these pain points. Um, first off, I think for the vast majority of games um, in Web3, Wallets should be invisible to the user. Um, I believe that they shouldn't even know that they're playing a blockchain game when they first connect. Um, that should be completely abstracted away and introduced at a point when it makes sense during the game and when it makes sense to the player. And players may never choose to actually interact with the blockchain elements of a game. Uh, the game should be fun without having to lean on Web3. Um, but kind of design design uh, choices aside... Um, I guess the first one of the first options to look at is whether you want to be custodial or non-custodial. Um, like a custodial uh, a solution providing custodial wallets for users, like Stardust, for example, can give like quite a familiar um, Web two like feel. Think of a centralized exchange when you log in with the username and password, and um, you can recover passwords if you've if you've lost it. You have customer support, etc. But you also have to KYC because these um, regulatory uh, compliance uh, dictates that 
for you know to reduce the risk of money laundering and things like that, users have to um, do KYC. And if you are using this service within a game, that KYC can sometimes get passed on to the the gamer, which can frustrate the onboarding pro uh, process potentially. So that's something to be aware of. On the other side, there's non-custodial, where um, users have complete control and ownership over their digital assets. There's no counterparty risk, but however, because they have control and full ownership, they also have full responsibility over over these uh, securing their their accounts. Um, up until now, this was a pretty big issue um, to to the mainstream adoption because players there was basically a single point of failure. If you lost your private key, then you lost access to everything, and there was no kind of recovery mechanism. Thankfully, recently, um, I'm sure most people listening to this will have heard of the term account abstraction, sometimes referred to as smart contract wallets or more uh, more recently just smart wallets. Um, this basically um, creates like a Web2 type experience for players and users uh, whilst remaining non-custodial. And I'll try not to get too much into the weeds here, but just to explain a little bit about account abstraction, because this is a hot topic at ECC as well. Um, you, the Ethereum ecosystem basically has two types of accounts. You have the externally owned account, which most people will be familiar with. That's like your MetaMask account. And that's basically just a key pair, a private key and a public key, which are used to create what's called a signer, which signs transaction data, and that's submitted to the blockchain to commit some kind of on-chain action. Um, the problem with this, though, is that the account itself, which holds the digital assets, and the, the key or the signer are very tightly coupled. So if you lose access to the signer, you lose access to the account. What account abstraction does is the account part of it is represented by a smart contract on chain um, and separate from the signer. So if the signer gets lost, it's no big deal. The account still exists and there can be a recovery mechanism set up. And because this um, account is a contract on chain, it's programmable and customizable. So you can do things like social recovery using multiple keys, um, which gets rid of seed phrases, which is like a big win for the for the space. Um, you can also batch transactions. So think about a traditional e-commerce type experience where you go into an in-game marketplace, you can select multiple NFTs, they go into your cart, and then you can purchase them all with a single transaction, pay gas fees once. Um, it can also use um, alternative encryption methods, so which without going into any details, really, it allows a transaction to be signed from this secure enclave on a mobile device turning everyone's phone into a hardware wallet for instance which is a, uh, which could be really interesting to see how that develops going forward but perhaps the most relevant to gaming is um the use of session keys so imagine uh connecting to a game for the first time you log in with your with like a social account or a username and password and in the background a key is generated by that game which you as the user give permission to act on your behalf and this key can have parameters defined by the developer such as a spending limit or a time to expire it, uh, maybe only live for 20 minutes, for example. And then what happens is you can play the game and this key just signs everything in the background for you, then you get no MetaMask pop-ups. So it's a much better user experience. It, it sounds like this, these smart contract wallets are kind of the way to go um, and will likely be the way we, we actually do wallets moving forward. Do you agree with that? I, I would say so, yes, because... Um, it just adds so many more features to the wallet other than just signing transactions and it puts up sufficient guardrails as well. Mm -hmm. So people can remain... Because if, if this infrastructure isn't built out properly, people will probably just turn to centralised alternatives. 
because mm-hmm. most people are not going to maintain seed phrases and private keys. It's too much responsibility. Yes. And I think an important note here, if you look at the market map that we made, we have we put a bunch of names under non-custodial, custodial wallets and smart wallets. Um, but I think that, you know, especially the people that are working at these companies, they realize that everyone's moving towards smart contract uh, wallets and, and these types of solutions. And so, um, you know, there's a good chance that within a couple of years, all of them will have migrated to that kind of solution that basically is the, is the best of both worlds. I would say that's likely, yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah, let's quickly, Ben, you, you talked a, bit, a lot about um, transactions and, and well, wallets. Can, could you continue and um, talk about meta transactions as well? Yeah, I mean, this this is very closely linked to the whole wallet experience. Um, and I'll just do this one quickly. But um, basically, like providers like of this, like OpenGSN or Biconomy, and there's a whole host of other ones. But what a meta transaction is, it's just a transaction wrapped in another transaction. So a user will create and sign a transaction to do something in a game or an app, and then the transaction will be wrapped and sent to a third party, which is often called a relayer. All that happens basically is the relayer will then execute the transaction on behalf of the user if it meets some certain criteria, um, and then they can pay the gas fees for the user, which obviously has to be economical at scale, um, uh, or gas fees can be abstracted, which means allowing the user to pay gas fees in any token, not just the native network token. Cool. Okay. Jamie, what can you tell us about fiat on and off ramps? Yeah, I mean I mean pretty um self explanatory fiat fiat on and off ramps basically allow you to take money um you know from your fiat bank account into sort of the, the web three ecosystem. I think a lot of people when they first touch particularly blockchain games, they're not gonna have crypto wallets already for anyone in the crypto space. You know how difficult it is to actually get money in. It's only getting more difficult with all this regulatory stuff with exchanges shutting down um, all the KYC. So basically the fiat and fiat off and on ramp solutions just basically provide you with easy to use solutions to be able to pay with traditional payment methods like a credit card, a bank transfer, etc. Um, we think this is going to be a there's sort of two versions, the point solutions, the moon pays, Coinbase Pay, Transact, which can plug in sort of at the point. So when you go to pay and buy, for example, an NFT or tokens for a game, it'll pop up. You can enter your credit card. Typically, you do have to KYC with those solutions. Um, So that's one area. Then you've got these end-to-end solutions. Um, I know Stardust, Blockist, they're all going after getting their money transmitter licenses so they can actually facilitate payments. Um, So that's another option as well. Again, sort of goes back to what Ben mentioned earlier of the end-to-end versus modular solutions. Um, yeah, I think I think our view on this is that it's going to be critical to have ways for users to onboard and access crypto, purchase cryptocurrencies without actually owning crypto and having a wallet set up. So having these fiat on and off-ramp solutions are, are critical to a, a good user experience. Does it make sense? Do companies need the modular approach here, or, or do you think it makes most sense in almost all of the cases to go for a uh, more end-to-end approach? Yeah, I mean, I mean, um, the end-to-end approach would probably be easier if you're using other tools um, that the end-to-end solution offers. But I think if you know if you're building your own tech stack for whatever reason, you've got a bunch of different solutions, and none of them really have that fiat on off-ramp. You know, the fees might be higher because they might be smaller. Then it might make more sense to go with a MoonPay. I think Stripe also has a solution. Correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, but um, sort of bigger providers where your margins might be a bit better. 
Makes sense. Do we have data um, on the percentage of players and maybe the the amounts of the amount of money that came f through these fiat on and off ramps or directly through crypto for games? Is there data around that? I, I don't have it off the top of my head. I'm sure it's somewhere out there and wouldn't be too hard to find. But um, yeah, I wouldn't be able to give you an, an accurate answer to that. Okay, got it. Good. I think uh, closely re um, related to the KYC um, and payments is bot prevention. I'm, um, I'm going a bit off track here, but I think this is a relevant part of the discussion. Uh, Justin, what can you tell us about you know that part of the of the stack? Yeah, I mean it, it's it's relevant. It relates to sort of understanding who your users are. It's quite interesting. I th I think this is one of the underappreciated problems in Web three gaming. Um, that's going to kind of rear rear its ugly head as the space develops, as games mature, as they come, you know, uh, online and, and, and users start playing these games. Um, you, you've seen the, the issues come about in games like Krabada. I don't know if you guys remember that old chestnut. Um, <laughs> I think one of the early <laughs> kind of games that, uh, uh, I, you know, was hailed as, as I don't know, just one of, one of the early games in, in Web3 that, that users were playing. And it just got absolutely botted to pieces um, at a stage that was industrial farming, bot, uh, industrial bot networks, um, some from both kind of users and funds alike uh, that just destroyed this game to to pieces. And you know, if I, th I, I on this pod, I'm sure you know you guys, uh, Nico, you've been a big proponent of, of on chain games, and we're doing some work on autonomous worlds, and you know that's going to be uh, something where you have sort of smart contract-like players um, or just, uh, you know, non-human uh, players perhaps that are able to play within these games, you know, whether that's allowed or not or, or banned at sort of points of entry. Um, it, it, it just needs sort of some type of solution where anti-botting uh, software comes into play. And... You know, in the Web3 space, we haven't seen that many solutions. I just want to caveat that, you know, that our report and you know, while the team has done some great work, it's perhaps not exhaustive. Um, so I don't want to sort of step on anyone's toes here that there may be great other companies out there in the space that we just haven't discovered. So please do reach out. Um, we've just seen, you know, VerySol is a company that we think is doing great work uh, in the space, um, trying to identify and combat bots. Uh the dirty little secret, uh, which is interesting in our, our research in the space, the dirty little secret in in traditional gaming is that, you know, botting to some degree, studios don't really care about it that much if it doesn't impact the like core fabric of the game. If, if you want to define it in in that way, you know, you see this in if if you ever play like World of Warcraft, you see the little characters, you know running to the gold pits all in a line like sort of doing the 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 coco samba or whatever you know the that, that you know, the, the the line towards the gold pits and all just sort of farming it and, and going wrong and you know if you users if you've ever played i don't know you've ever i don't know just got absolutely nerfed in some sort of first person shooter there's all, all kind of like uh shooting uh uh bots or like anti-cheat uh sort of cheating bots that help you aim and stuff like that and to some degree traditional game studios don't really care about that because gamers keep coming back um it doesn't really impact the game really detrimentally but in web3 gaming this is completely different because at times there's financial incentives uh in some of the games because of the financial primitives that are enabled by crypto um there's 
tends to be a lot more at stake. Sometimes, you know, you get stuff for free, you know, general terms, airdrops, perhaps NFTs, uh, as sort of NFT factories and what have you. And so it becomes a lot more important to um, institute any kind of antibiotic software. And yeah, there's a few others in the space uh, that, that we looked at. Um, fingerprint JS, as well as an, another way to institute a kind of cookie-like experience or just try to understand, you know, if users are who they say they are. Uh, but I think it is just definitely a problem to be solved. So it, it perhaps not a good answer, but it seems to be something to to focus on more requests for more companies to look at this as the space develops. 100% agree. Um, and then I guess a final point here is that we recently saw reports about RuneScape having like a new revival because using the current generation of, of yeah. LLMs, um, you know, there's actually now players in the game that really feel human that you can interact with that are just, you know, talking to ChatGPT or connecting to ChatGPT on the back end. And are, are yeah. you know, it feels like this is a new world again where there's a bunch of new players, you know, trying to figure out dying, you know, at level 15 because they're trying to find fights, you know, enemies that are way too strong. Um, and so, you know, I think these technologies can be used for good which yeah. I think RuneScape is one example of in this case, um, but obviously it can also be used for bad um, in, in games like you discussed, where there's actual uh, financial, financial or money at stake and, um, and you can actually make money by playing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Good. Next, marketplace infrastructure, very important. Um, Web3 seems to be all about trading, so we need marketplaces for that. Okay, what can you tell us about that, Ben? I actually think, if if you don't mind, Nico, I'd like to do a, a software development kits first because it kind of it um it'll help the discussion of marketplaces. So um, SDKs, yes, software development kits. Basically, it's just a way to simplify and abstract domain-specific knowledge into familiar constructs for developers. Um, so maybe the best way to describe it is through an example. Um, if I want to have an NFT in a game. In the code, rather than having to make the, the RPC call to a node, send the, the message um, with all the parameters, get the message back, process it, and then put it into a variable, an SDK would just give you an, an ERC721 object. And then using normal kind of um, object-oriented programming type language, uh, language features like dot notation, you can just access methods on that object and passing parameters. So it's, it ends up looking much more like a, a programming language that traditional developers are familiar with. And this this just allows developers to follow best practices more easily and reduce complexity, which in turn expedites development cycles, which leads to higher quality and maintainable code. And if you just look at what's available today on the Unity Asset Store, um, it's a sign of how far we've come. They have a decentralization category where there's a whole bunch of um, uh, Unity-approved SDKs from various blockchains, various providers. Um, so yeah, go check that out if you've not if you've not seen it. But this uh, this leads nicely into marketplaces because this is how a lot of these marketplaces are built in game. Um, well, first of all, like most marketplaces that people will probably use today in the space are external marketplaces or standalone marketplaces. Think OpenSea, um, you know, Magic Eden, Looks Rare, etc. Um, but this is not the case in traditional video games. Um, if if uh, users were frequently required to leave the game to trade items with someone else and then come back, um, that's just not a good immersive experience, and you're probably going to see a lot more churn um, doing it that way. So. 
we believe the future of uh, game-related trading volume um, is going to happen in in-game marketplaces. Um, and SDKs, because it simplifies a lot of the blockchain primitives and blockchain logic, um, enables more complex experiences to be built, um, which tightly integrate with the gameplay itself. So we we do see deeply integrated and embedded marketplaces as the, the future of this space. So like imagine Nico, like I uh, our, our two characters in World of Warcraft, we meet in a tavern. And rather than uh go into like some sort of marketplace, I can just pass you a sword across the table. And the action of me doing that in game will actually submit a transaction on chain in the background and transfer the entity ownership from me to you. Um and uh companies like Ready Games are already building this stuff. Um, check out their Twitter. They put some uh, demos up recently of this happening in a in a demo game, which is really cool. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see how this uh, particular space plays out. Yep. We, um, a couple of weeks ago, actually had a episode with David from Ready Games on. He's been on a couple of times, actually, and um, he, he gave us some... Uh, he showed us a video of, of these things working, which was very impressive. And for the, those of you who are listening, he also did an amazing job on talking over it and describing what happened in, uh, in, in the video he showed, which is a reason by itself to listen because he, he did such a good job. Um, would, they, would, would, would you push, is liquidity going to get pushed to external marketplaces though? You know, if that makes sense, like, is there still going to be a role for external marketplaces? Hmm. Um, I think I for regular, I think for regular NFT trading that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, non-game related trading um, is still going to be you know like trading your PFP projects or your art uh, on-chain artwork mm -hmm. um, and music NFTs, for example. There's probably still going to be a place for external marketplaces there. Yeah, I, I I feel like it will depend. I think you know what what Ben said embedded marketplaces that live inside the game make more sense just from a user experience point of view. But I also think that um, context-specific marketplaces will always be better than generalized ones. Um, you know, a, a gaming-specific marketplace will always do a better job at being a marketplace for gaming items than an open sea can be because an open sea is so general. Um, and so that being said, I think that depending on the types of, of assets that are used within a game, most of them, I think, will make will all, all of the liquidity or, or vast majority of the liquidity will happen within the um, the game itself. That being said, um, you know there is a world where there will like I can see a world emerge where you have interoperable ecosystems of games with assets that you that that you can you know, start using across different games. And at that point, you know I can see more of a um, of a role to play for more generalized marketplaces that's you know or not inside of one of these games yeah okay so like it, it depends on the fungibility of the stuff that you're sort of selling to a degree because you know the the infrastructure of, of if you just look at the in the the development of in, fintech infrastructure over time um embedded lending or embedded wallets or whatever it is um always push out their liquidity more often than not to some kind of generalized uh, marketplace to some degree just to get more liquidity and sort of improve pricing and what have you. But I, you know, that's the fungibility of a dollar is a bit different to the you know, fungibility of a sword in one game and the sort of shield in another. And mm -hmm. that's sort of, I think, you know, Ben, you did some work on that and like 
that just the interoperability of assets is a bit tricky to get around. And I would say one thing that complex makes this discussion more complex is that you can have you can actually steal liquidity or just copy liquidity because it's all on chain anyway. And so you know these in embedded marketplaces are still open, right? They're still blockchain enabled, and so theoretically you could copy an an, an order from. Um, or use the liquidity from that embedded marketplace and put it on, on your marketplace, which is something that we've seen within the, the, the wider NFT space as well. Um, yeah. And so it's, go, it's always going to be tough, but I think you know the most reasonable outcome for this is that the vast majority of the liquidity will be um, inside of the game itself because that's where all of the trading will happen. Yeah, it'll be cool, like you know um, how Brooks talks about the the different metas and like the financialization outside the core game loop. If that starts developing, you know, around subsword or, or whatever, what have you is, is being traded at, at higher levels for, for some kind of reason, how that kind of meta develops outside the core game would be really yeah. cool to see. Yeah, you could see like a the, the most more the most expensive CS:GO skins if they were NFTs. You could see that happening on the more generalized um, marketplace because it 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 because of their value they become. Separate from the game, almost. And the collector's items, exactly. Well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Good. Um, marketplace infrastructure um, and SDKs done. Jamie, um, economies are important for Web three games, and if not done well, especially if bot prevention is not done well, you can have and see your game and its economy completely crash. What can you tell us about uh, tooling around that? Yeah, I mean, I think this is not not a unique um, problem to Web3. You see in Web2, specifically in like free-to-play, um, the amount of people, data scientists that go in on the back end to a game like Candy Crush just to ensure everything's balanced, sinks and faucets are all managed well is enormous, probably one of the biggest areas. Um, and I think, as Justin mentioned, with the bot prevention, this new era of Web3 gaming, there's going to be inherently a bit more financialization involved. So... You know, that's going to alter player behaviors. That's going to alter um, a bunch of other aspects as well. And it's going to be super crucial that games are super on top of this, whether it be building their own in-house teams. There's a variety of tools, which we mentioned in the report, like Machinations and Telescope Labs, which allow you to sort of simulate player behaviors and how their actions might impact, you know, game economy. Um, we've seen sort of in games like EVE Online how fun the economic aspect of a game can be. And, you know, just being able to work with that team over the past few months, um, the amount of thought and resources they put into actually building and managing that is is insane. And it's no small feat as well. So I think our view on uh, the economic design is, you know, you can use these tools to give you a good a good baseline, a good framework. But um, the best way is just by being able to actually see player behaviors modeling stuff out, um, you know, having people in your team internally who are able to, you know, assess data, make good recommendations um, and inferences of that data. I think, um, you know, what we're going to see in Web3, which will be interesting and something, you know, I don't quite have a strong opinion on yet, but is how people do their go-to-markets. Are they going to try and do it a lot more phased and start with a smaller cohort where the stakes aren't as high if you have one area of the game that's being exploited economically because there's only five, 600 people playing, it's not going to, you know, be huge. Whereas if you go straight into mass market, hundred thousand people all exploiting the same thing at once, um, 
it sort of drains that aspect and, and ruins the game. So it's going to be interesting to see how people and games and developers balance their go-to-market and their economy designs. I think the toughest part in Web3 is we don't have a sort of tried and tested solution like free-to-play or traditional gaming might have. So everyone's sort of in the dark. Um, so it's uh, it's not until we we start to build some uh, some solutions where, you know, it might get a bit easier, but right now that's probably one of the toughest challenges facing Web3 gaming. Yeah, I 100% agree. Part of our thesis is that we'll see the rise of virtual economies that will rival in size existing countries. And if you know how many economists are trying to manage the economy of a country, um, you'll understand why tooling can be very helpful here and becomes very important the moment um, you know these economies are essentially open, which happens once once you put them on, on the blockchain. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we can see hyperinflation play out in just a couple of days um, if it's not designed properly, which is interesting experiment, but um, not necessarily good for the uh, the team behind the game. Yep, 100%. Good. Jamie, what can you tell us about uh, gaming launchers? Yeah, I think I think this is one area we're particularly super excited about in the Web3 space. Um, obviously, we've seen how successful Steam and Valve have been and just how much uh, value they've been able to create for themselves in the enterprise by having sort of the go-to game launcher from a UX perspective as a player. You don't want to be dealing with a million apps on your computer or... You know, you want to have everything aggregated in a place. And then from there, you're able to add on social elements, discovery elements for game developers, makes it really easy to publish games when you know you're publishing to a platform that has hundreds of millions of users. So I think for us, um, obviously, Steam hasn't been disrupted yet. Epic Games um, has been spending a ton of money and resources trying to, um, you know, disrupt them with their Epic Game Store, but have proven to be relatively ineffective so far. So I think this is an area where we haven't seen a lot of Web2 competitors emerge, um, and we were quite cautious initially looking at this space. I think what differentiates um, Web3 and Web2 launchers is just sort of the Web3 feature set, which we think is going to be essential to being able to play these games. Valve has come out and said, um, you know, they're banning NFTs and crypto, on Steam, so not a, an avenue they're they're likely to pursue in the near future. Epic Game Store is welcoming blockchain games, but I think from a regulatory perspective, it doesn't make sense for them to really lean into some of the core Web3 features. Um, and we've seen with wallets like MetaMask, Rabi, all that stuff, where because you sit so close to the user, like a launcher sits like right, it's the closest you can get to the consumer, you're able to um, have a bunch of interesting monetization opportunities. Like if you can include swaps, trading within the launcher and be able to package that in a super convenient use case and just charge a convenience fee, you know, we've seen with MetaMask did a couple hundred million dollars in revenue over the past few years just by having a swap feature directly integrated in this wallet. So for us, we think it's a super important UX, UX step. I think the Web3 gaming space is super fragmented still, like even... As us, as it's our full-time job to stay on top of the space. I have a trouble staying on top of all the games and where stuff's launching. So using um, a launcher like Hyperplay, it's really nice just to be able to like open that up, see all the games sort of on that launcher, be able to flip through them, easily play them. Um, my wallet's connected. It's super easy UX and overlay. And I think that the UX with stuff like account abstraction is only going to get better. Um, I think for games, 
Um, thankfully, these sort of Gen 2 games building in Web3, they're able to tap into launchers like Hyperplay, Fractal, Onekin, Elixir, and be able to use that as sort of their main distribution method and not need to go build out their own launchers, build out their own clients. And I think will be a huge step for UX and, um, you know, hopefully people start to use this stuff. And, you know, as Web3 gaming grows, the, the go-to launchers are Web3 native ones just because they've got a more um, comprehensive tool set. I think the looking at how much money Steam makes, and it's not public, but I think everyone realizes that it's it's a shit ton. Um, <laughs> I've seen dozens of Steam for Web3 companies start. What do you think, Jamie, will differentiate the, the, the winners from the losers here? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, so we've obviously looked at a bunch of these. I think it's going to be, part of it is just going to be timing and being in the right spot at the right time if you're able to, land an exclusive sort of what Steam did with a game that blows up. You build that distribution mode, and then you can start to lean into the flywheels of games want to come onto your platform because there's tens of millions of users potentially because of this one game. Uh, and then you build sort of that distribution edge. You build that, which gives you sort of an edge on supply, which then sort of leads to more um, demand and users on the platform. So I think that's one element. I think also just being super product and developer focused. I think right now we're in a stage where, you know, we're having a decently healthy ecosystem of supply and games being built. Um, and the users are sort of not there yet, but that's fine. There's like a lag time with game development. And I think, you know, teams that really focus on building the best developer experience and building a product that, you know, maybe it's not as, as clean on the user side yet, but as a developer, when you're like, okay, what launcher I'm going to use? Oh, I'm going to use this one just because, um, it's the easiest to, it's the easiest for me to plug into. The dev docs are super clean. I think taking that approach is, um, sort of superior. But again, um, it's still early. I think we're excited about companies like Hyperplay. Obviously, Disclosure, Bitcraft is investors. Um, just what they're doing, having a super developer, heavy focused. Um, Jacob, the founder, previously ran product at MetaMask. Uh, so has a lot of experience, has success being able to, at that time when he joined, it was MetaMask versus Argent. Um, Argent was actually leading in users, I believe. And, um, you know, he was able to obviously turn MetaMask into what it is today. So sort of we, we think um, he's in a good spot to potentially do that again on the launcher side. Awesome. Good. I think um, kind of related to launchers is uh, tokenized gaming ecosystems, um, you know, an ecosystem of games around one token or multiple tokens or NFTs. Um, what do you see in that space today, Jamie? Yeah, I think this is a super exciting space and really um, taps into some of the core premises and, and um, ethos of Web3 in a way of interoperability. I think, um, so basically like the, the, for high level, for those that don't know, these tokenized gaming e ecosystems are basically a collection of games um, that share a common token standard together. So this can be, you can sort of look at it as a spectrum. You've got blockchains as well, which can be seen as a tokenized gaming ecosystem. So in the context of Immutable X, um, they built this ecosystem, have this token to align people. Um, people can use the network with the token. And through that, they've been able to build a lot of network value for their token. And then, you know, you get into some flywheels where Immutable has been able to use their token to offer grants to acquire new games and sort of grow the ecosystem that way. There's also the um, more grass mo grassroots movements like Treasure, which sort of have this this magic token um, 
and have basically the idea is games build on this token and incorporate this token into their ecosystem. Um, and you build sort of network effects that way. Uh, I think, you know, still super early. There's a few like treasures obviously gotten quite big. Immutable Gala have gotten quite big as well. Um, but we haven't seen any of them sort of take off in terms of really being able to tap into good synergies between games. I think with these ecosystems, and you see this on every platform, you see this on YouTube, you see this everywhere, the breakout success cases typically go um, out on their own. So I think the biggest challenge for these gaming ecosystems are going to be, how do I maintain breakout success cases? How do I incentivize sort of, you know, my winners to stay on my platform, stay in my ecosystem um, versus going off and, and starting their own, for example. Um, I don't know. I think the whole team spent a lot of time in this space. So I think Ben, Justin, even Nico, you, you would have uh, some more more opinions on this. You can see how little I helped in this because um, if I was a part of this report and this part specifically, you would have seen loot in there as well. And um, I'm slightly offended that it's not in there. <laughs> Shoulder uh, bags. <laughs> Shoulder bags. Drop the ball there, clearly. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, follow up. Follow up, yeah. We're uh, in, in, in exactly one month from now, loot will be two years old. Um, but I think, uh, yeah. Looking at where it is today, I would say that you know the ones that we've put up there are probably slightly ahead in terms of actual user um, adoption and games that are coming out. Um, but yeah, this is one that if, if you've listened to this for a bunch um, or if you've listened to, to this before or this podcast before, you know that I think um, there's there's some, some true value in here. Yeah, I think it, it sort of ties into the launchers a bit, you know, like the main, the main thing is being able to um, emulate sort of that arcade-like experience of discovery, cross-promotion, um, you know, you win tickets in one game, you win tickets in one game, and then you can go to a different game, win tickets, and then sort of redeem it for a common prize as well. And then like we're seeing some really interesting innovations in this. One thing um, is what Bazooka Tango is doing with Shardbound, we're basically gamifying this common token um, in the form of these crystals, which are inherently exist and applicable to every single game. And you can earn crystals by playing games in an ecosystem and then that be able to use that to enhance items specifically when e within each game. So I can be playing sort of my TCG game, earning a bunch of crystals there, and then going into my you know role-playing game, forge my or fuse my crystals to one of my characters and you know get item buffs and stuff like that so that's sort of a, a super indirect interesting view of interoperability that we're super excited to see play out as they as they begin to build out their ecosystem mm -hmm. it introduces um economy design choice issues again you know that you already previously spoke about i mean this isn't this is a problem that's fraught you know man, woman, child, you know, human beings since, you know, the dawn of, of civilization and whatever. You see this in like the fracturing of the European Union. Um, you have countries lifting up other, or, you know, some countries viewing that they're lifting up other countries, other countries putting down splits of the UK from the, the EU for, you know, various kind of reasons or what have you. But it's just, it's difficult to manage this kind of grouping of games that way, perhaps, as Jamie said, you have one breakout success or you have, even if it's not a breakout success, you have one game diluting the impact of, you know, it's, it's, it's crystals or what have you, or it's items on, on another game. So it becomes increasingly trickier, you know, once you, you, you suffer from a success problem uh, to a degree, but uh, it does become tricky to manage with all this at play. That's mm -hmm. a, good, uh, a good comparison there. Yeah, I like that. Good. 
UA, Jason. Yeah, this is um, this one probably deserves a, a longer post and and discussion. So I'll just kind of glance over it. Uh, it's always quite interesting, you know. To the question that's asked is where are the users in crypto, but um, I think the purpose of this report is maybe just to ask back where's the tooling, and so we've um, <laughs> where are the tools, and so we you know, we've tried to cover as much as we can uh, to some degree in a very sort of short space on the report in, t- in terms of where we see the user acquisition space. Um, so just to be clear, when we're talking about a user acquisition, we're, we're talking about performance marketing, so the more quantitative side of user acquisition, as well as brand marketing, the more qualitative side. And we had a guest post uh, uh, on the Bitcraft um, Insights page from from Matt. Uh, he's sort of a, a great, uh, uh, he's got a storied history in the gaming space and wrote a great post for how builders should think about user acquisition in Web3. Um, and he's got a great way to kind of simplify it in that to think about user acquisition, you have to think about the simple parameters of your customer acquisition cost in gaming, CPI, cost per install is, is probably the more um, used uh, proxy for that. Uh, and compare that to the lifetime value of your users. So with that in mind, we just, we try to dumb it down a little bit because I by no means am an expert in the space and still learning from you know the, the great portfolio companies that we have um, and, and the research that we've done. Try to dumb it down in terms of sort of subsections that how do you discover and find users? How do you attract and monetize users? How do you understand how you allocate your ad spend? And then how do you retain users? So we'll go through that, but I think it's important to just set a bit of context. Um, In traditional gaming, we've seen CACs, uh, customer acquisition costs, increase substantially. I mean, just even if we look at e-commerce, I think there was a a study done that they've gone up CACs have gone up you know, 3x uh, over the past five years or something like that, which says a lot of things. On one, to some degree, it says that UA, user acquisition, is working well. Um, it's getting more competitive to find users. The, the tooling is improving, which is sort of increasing competition. Uh, on the gaming side, it's getting, it indicates that it's getting more competitive to build games. I mean, we know this firsthand. Uh, it's just very expensive. Um, there's a lot of games out there, and it costs a lot to build great games, and it's very hard to do. You then have the added complexity of Apple's removal of IFDA. Um, it's just ad, removed ad tracking to preserve privacy for its users. And that's had sort of, to some degree, pretty bad consequences for the gaming industry. Um, I, I think it's it's um, working through that at the moment, but we've seen the impact of that. Now you look at Web3 Gaming, which is all of the above, plus it has its own idiosyncratic issues. There's a pseudonymity afforded by wallets, um, decentralized ID uh, infrastructure that we sort of know pretty well. Um, there's a smaller player base of early adopters that you have to try attract to play your games. Plus, you have now the cost of attracting non-crypto native users to kind of cross that chasm. You know, we've spoken, Ben touched on uh, uh, account extraction and make it easier for users to jump into games. But, you know, these are added costs. And then you have the immaturity of the tooling. So... What we've seen in, uh, uh, I guess, version one, if we could call it that, of user acquisition, it's typically, you, you know, you had airdrops that were dropped to wallets of games that, that, that or just general wallets of, of users that interacted with the protocol or game to some degree or bought NFTs or what have you. The problem is that those, these metrics and these, this, these kind of methods were just really cost inefficient. They just haven't 
proven themselves out uh, to some degree. Uh, I think some of the interesting stats is that for some airdrops, you get something like a 0.05% click-through rate uh, just because some users just don't even see airdrops in their wallets. And so it's just like an ineffective ad targeting mechanism. Other stats, I think it was like 1,000, 1,400 or something. There was some calculation, $1,400 per user for the optimism airdrop. Um, It's still sort of working its way through as as people see it. But it's just, that's a hell of a lot of money to expect people to pay to use that protocol. And I think, JV, you guys did some, it was a long time, it was a while ago, but you guys also did some um, work on just the inefficiency of airdrop space. Do you remember that stat? Uh, it was pretty back of the napkin math, but basically sure. we were, um, you know, we were determining that, you know, companies were spending between 40 and 60% of sort of their total cumulative enterprise value on user acquisition. Um, and that in some cases, you know, people were spending thousands of dollars to acquire a user that would, you know, basically their LTV would be like minus a thousand. So like it was just like uh, no one was really thinking about it in those terms. Um, yeah, yeah, gotta love the sort of incredible stats that crypto has at times. I think two and negatives so, make a positive, right? So exactly, you know, it's guys, up there. We're, we're printing money anyway, so it's it's free. <laughs> Magic internet money. Exactly, you go backwards when you go. Neg- they're so negative. Um, no, so like, and then so so. It was just the V1, if I could call it that, very ineffective, uh, just cost inefficient, and lo and behold, struggle to find users. So look at the tooling space, the way we've divided it is firstly, how do you discover uh, and find users? Um, we've spoken about the V1 airdrops, there was kind of crude airdrops that were based on your holdings. You know, if you had a picture of a monkey in your, your wallet, you maybe liked a picture of a milady or whatever. I don't want to upset any two communities or whatever, but there was just like kind of yeah, crude... Yeah. It was just kind of you know, crude analysis that was done. Um, sometimes it was just how much money... You know, look, there's a whale, lots of wallets in there. Sorry, lots of tokens in their wallets. It's sort of airdrop them stuff. Lo and behold, it turned out to be an exchange hot wallet. You know, so it's just like, difficult ways to, to, to kind of attract users that didn't really work. What we're seeing now, there's some super interesting companies um, looking at, um, I want to say de-anonymizing wallets. Um, Just want to use my words carefully here. Not doxing wallets and sort of identifying the the, the identities of, of particular wallets, but really trying to understand what are the demographic identifiers attached to said wallets. So, you know, looking at wallet activity, looking at... um, alongside social activity on, on whatever platform it may be, can you try, guess, or under or at least estimate, is this wallet a female, you know, age 35, with perhaps in a certain income bracket, perhaps from some sort of geography? Um, and if we have that data, can we better find that user so that we can target them more effectively? So companies like Addressable and God Mode, I think, are doing... Um, really good work in the space to try, you know, get to some sort of level of um, demographic identifier so that we can better target users. Uh, you then have other approaches like um, companies such as Forge and a few others that are building gamer-centric user profiles. You know, so if you have this, you know, if, if you sort of flip the, the, the traditional ad tech model in its head, if you say, sort of build your profile of, I am a gamer that likes FPS uh, shooters, set in war settings, and I have an income bracket of X and Y, and you know various other identifiers that you sort of provide yourself 
um, open to ad targeting in some sort of way. And that's, I guess, the beauty of, of the primitives that we have here uh, in, in, in crypto that allows for these sort of, this sort of infrastructure to be built. I think Jamie will touch, or we will touch a bit about that in terms of decentralized identities a bit later on. Uh, but generally, yeah, what's our view here? We think discovery is still going to happen on traditional or incumbent platforms, you know, the Google's Metas of the world. Um, it's also newer channels, TikTok, Instagram, uh, Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. Do you, do you um, consider X or Twitter an incumbent platform? Well, what do you consider it? I would say yes. <laughs> yes, uh, well, I would just yeah. Look, it's an incumbent platform, definitely. Um, I, I, I like newer in terms of. I say newer as a distribution channel because the ad um, advertising machinery just kind of sucks at times, and it's a little bit broken now. Um, mm -hmm. So you need a newer way to navigate it. And they, I'd chat about it. I'll speak about it a bit later on. But they're changing the model to kind of a more earned media model. So it's uh, it's like a slightly different advertising channel, but. Look, it's an incumbent uh, by any means. And I th there was just some, you know, stats on 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 just incumbent platforms. They control like 70% of the eyeballs or just something ridiculous. So you have to go to where the users are, but you need infrastructure to be able to target them more effectively. But that infrastructure needs to be a mix of kind of crypto native targeting, right? Understanding wallets, spending power of wallets, as well as being able to reach users in traditional and incumbent platforms. Good, so that's how you discover users. Uh, how do you attract and monetize users now and, and what have we seen in the space? So there's two interesting, I think, infrastructural tooling uh, uh, tools being built uh, at the moment. The first is questing. We, I want to term it, it's not perhaps the, the best term, but questing as a service platforms uh, we've seen develop. In the traditional ad tech sort of nomenclature, these are similar to offer walls um, or just generally incentivized acquisition. You pay users to do something in your game. Like how do you pay them to complete kind of key actions? And Traditionally, questing as a service platforms have struggled from bottom. We've already mentioned, you know, if you sort of offer money to someone, you're going to get these just massive industrial botting farms in, in whatever sort of place with a person pinging a million kind of phones at the same time to try complete level five of whatever game that you're trying to you know, offer $5 for or something like that. So they've traditionally struggled from bad and low quality users that they, they've attracted. And they've, in, they've struggled for... Um, Intention issues. So intention issues is, you know, an ad for a normal game, uh, the, the intention of a user seeing that game is, is quite clear. So what do I mean by that? You, you see an ad for a first-person shooter set in a war setting. If someone clicks that ad, their intention is, is, is quite clear because they know the value proposition of that game. It's like, oh, well, you know, that's a first-person shooter. It's kind of like Call of Duty. Let me click on that. I feel like playing it. Right? And so the value proposition is right up front in, in normal games. Now, in crypto, the value proposition is much further down the line. So let's take the extreme example, on-chain games. To acquire a user in an on-chain game, that value proposition, first you, you have to you know, sort of like explain what on-chain games are, and then you have to take them down the pipe, you know, of like coding a smart contract, like sort of achieving some, getting into the core game loop, which is like quite far along. Maybe it's a little bit kind of clunky. It's getting better in on-chain games. But the value proposition is is much, much further down the pipe. So in crypto, perhaps, you know, sort of quest as a service or offer walls um, 
makes a bit more sense because that value proposition is not right up front. You know, the user doesn't understand what they're getting into. You've got to push them a little bit down your funnel, down the pipe. The issue, though, is that what we've seen is game studios, traditional game studios, typically only spend about 5 to 10% on incentivized ad spend. And so at this point, we're not sure how that evolves in Web3. You know, will Web3 gaming studios spend more on incentivized ad spend to sort of push users further down the pipe? Um, we're not sure. It remains to be seen, but it's an interesting kind of development that perhaps there, there's more at play for questing as a service or incentivized acquisition. Secondly, uh, affiliates or I guess RefLink infrastructure, if, if you guys recall the heydays of exchange, um, centralized exchanges and RefLinks and people sort of paying off their holidays and, and what have you with exchange RefLinks. Um, this is actually quite interesting in, in crypto because I think earned media generally is yeah, you know, I mentioned it previously. It's becoming more commonplace um, in just traditional social media platforms. Um, it's related to the creator economy. It's a bit you know, overused, overhyped term, I think, at this point. But you have this tribalism of online communities forming, where curation is kind of sought from, I want to say, leaders of these tribal communities, but you know, influencers or what have you. People kind of trust this. Goes back to that thousand true fans to the you know, thesis. I think that that that's been pushed a few times. Is that like it? It makes a lot of sense where you see suddenly presidential candidates kind of campaigning on traditional social media platforms or like small little isolated communities on whatever podcast host you know is it will will have them on to spread their message and target certain demographics. And now it's becoming like, well, if this is happening, how do we? kind of create an earn, earn media formalized financial infrastructure around this. So what's great in crypto is that, you know, with data and analytics about wallets and wallets infrastructure and understanding how much, you know, tokens users have, what sort of communities they belong to according to their wallets, um, and, and just the openness of this, you can now really understand the relative user value, um, this is the relative value of users more effectively. So, you know, what does that mean? It means, well, look at a user, got certain tokens, they got certain NFTs, they belong to certain communities. Um, they're a part of my game. We sort of have this sort of stratification of users. What users are similar to that? Maybe not based on demographic identifiers, maybe just based on um, sort of whatever uh, kind of correlations of data you could look at. I mean, uh, this, is, it, this is what Facebook did um, when they built lookalike audiences back in the the, the heyday of, of mobile ad tech, sort of said, well, these audiences kind of look similar. And it wasn't just your know, females of over 35 playing these games. It was like they belong to, I don't know, like the, the, the gun club in like some random little town. And they also knit and, you know, they also drive cars of only four by four cars, you know, like these weird kind of correlations of lookalike audiences that you can now build when you have this open wallet infrastructure. So what's our view here in conclusion is that there's pretty interesting stuff happening when you layer on, you know, the context of crypto being, having financial primitives, um, being open, and you layer that into sort of what does it mean for user data for gaming? You know, how can we understand users and their user value better? Cool. So in, we've discovered users. We're now attracted them. How do we know how much to allocate to our ad spend? So this goes back to attribution. Um, 
it's a term in traditional ad tech where you know you need to understand how much you spend on your advertising uh, and what sort of key, especially where the marketing touch points in your uh, uh, advertising funnel have occurred for what, you know, what user uh, what a user has done. Attribution in Web three just simply doesn't really exist in in the traditional sense, given you know, the the bridge between on chain and off chain data. Um, and so, you, if you don't have it at the moment, you can't really understand how much of your ad budget to spend, uh, and, and what has, and more importantly, what has been effective in terms of like where a user has converted in your funnel. So, without knowing where users come from or where they best convert, it's difficult to allocate your ad spend. There's great, there's a the few companies doing this. Um, Spindle and Safari are, I think, um, some of the ones that are, you know, are sort of more well-known. Um, and it's just a very difficult problem to solve, which is perhaps why you don't see too many trying to tackle it. But we think that you know, if you don't know the levers of your customer acquisition cost, as well as like how much they're going to spend in your game, you can't really understand you know, how best to allocate your, your budget towards this. So once that's built, you know, we know how to allocate our ad spend. Uh, and then lastly, how do you retain your users? So something we didn't perhaps cover in the report, but it's worth just touching on. Um, some of the interesting stats is that, you know, retention stats in, in crypto gaming is just more generally unheard of. They're just incredibly, incredibly high, um, sometimes two times higher than traditional gaming. Um, reasons for this park most likely to the inherent just financial financialization of, of, of you know, what these users have, how these users have entered the game. There's perhaps a sunk cost to it to some degree. Uh, I think there's also elements of just digital ownership and perhaps an emotional sunk cost. You know, you suddenly have something of ownership. It kind of keeps you within a game, you know, in a community of hopefully like-minded players. Um, so it's just interesting that that the, the retention stats in, in crypto gaming are so high. Um, and it's worth mentioning that you know it's it's much cheaper to retain users than it is to acquire them, and so what we our view on this is is uh, with all of the sort of stuff that I've mentioned above, um, open wallet data, better analytics, um, the core unlock in sort of the retention layer of crypto is that you generally distributed rewards in the form of status and utility. You can now distribute rewards in the form of status, utility, and financial rewards. Right. So what does that mean? Is that, well, if you understand that a user and you sort of have these analytics that a, a wallet or a certain user is, has an LTV of $100, perhaps you could sort of retain them with just $10 it's, it's, or, or what have you and sort of arbitrage that LTV to keep them um, in, online uh, or keep them within your game. So what's the conclusion Yeah, We think the space is maturing. Uh, we've spoken to a lot of Great companies in the space. Um, a lot of them mentioned the port. Some, of course, not. So again, please reach out. We keep uh, investigating the space if we haven't uh, touched on your company. Um, and it's good to see. You know, studios have gone from cobbling together Frankenstein monster of UA tooling, you know, like a mix of apps fire, apps loving, with Google Analytics kind of stitched in between, with some sort of attribution, plus like maybe doing their on-chain analytics in-house, uh, and then like sort of looking at active wallets and then sort of smashing it together in a dashboard on, on Vercel or, you know, whatever BI tool that they're using, costing $200,000, $300,000 a year. Like, it just 
incredibly expensive, clunky stuff to now actually starting to use some of the companies that we've mentioned um, and looked at in space. And that's, you know, it, it's still early. It's been maybe like a year, if that, at most. But I think we're sort of getting a lot closer to having the levers uh, of, you know, customer acquisition cost and, and LTV um, that that game studios can play with, you know, so we're getting closer to ROAS accuracy, so return on your ad spend accuracy. And I think that's a good sign for the games we see coming down the pipe. You know, I don't want to um, preach our portfolio too much, but we've got some great games coming down the, the pipe that I think, you know, given that this tooling is now being built out, it, it, it bodes well. So that's rant over, guys. <laughs> but uh, it is a big section to cover just because it is like so important for, it's the top of the funnel for, for gaming. Yeah, it's Justin. How... Justin wrote the uh, the UA section in the report, which is he did a great job of going over it, which is why we wanted him here. So thank you for that, Justin. Yeah, so only thing I actually did, you guys did the heavy lifting. <laughs> I like how you preface it with um, "I'll go over it at a, at a glance" and then proceed to talk <laughs> for eighteen minutes. Well, it's a big section. I mean, these it are is. these billion dollar companies that have been built out of just this section alone. You talk about modularity and like end to end solutions. Like, oof, this is a big one. Fully agree, man. I think uh, if we're ever going to get to that 100 million player base in Web3, this is this is how we do it. So um, good with that. I think we're already a bit over our time. Um, the final two parts are, I would say, they're important, but not as interesting as some of the others we covered. It's um, decentralized identity and data analytics. And analytics. We'll leave those aside. You can find those in the reports at, at the bottom. Um, if you want to dig deeper into any of these, um, I would say, you know, they're written more at length in the reports. Otherwise, feel free to reach out. The go-to man here is Ben. So Ben at bitcraft.vc. That's where you can reach him. Technoir on Twitter as well and Discord. Um, or or OX Technoir. What is it? Zero X Nailer is my handle on Twitter. Uh, zero X Nailer. Yeah. Okay. Good. But, um, yeah. Oh, fantastic. So uh, yeah, reach out to him. Um, if you want to dig deeper into the whole UA space, you have Justin at BitCraft.vc. Send him an email. Um, and if you want to do a full episode on that um, or you want to have a full episode on that, feel free to uh, to ask and um, we can provide. So that's Jamie, Ben, Justin. Thank you so much for, for one, working on this, making this report. I think it's useful. I think it was highly needed. And um, I look forward to getting a, a yearly update of this um, if you guys are down because next year this will look very different um, and then listener thank you if you made it till here really appreciate it hope you learned a lot and um, we look forward to speaking to you in the next episode bye